Good morning, dear saints, and blessed Lenten tide. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Monday, February 26th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today we take up Deuteronomy chapter 14, wherein Moses delivers instructions to the Israelites, emphasizing their unique status as a people chosen by God. He outlines dietary laws, he distinguishes between clean and unclean animals, and he sets a standard for holiness and health in their community. With compassion and foresight, Moses also addresses tithing, ensuring the support of the Levites and the care of the poor. He fosters a spirit of generosity and unity. But through these commands, Moses not only reinforces the Israelites' commitment to Yahweh, but also their moral and spiritual distinction among the nations. Folks, whether it's over the air, online at kfuo.org, or as a podcast, no matter how you're joining us this morning, thank you for tuning in. You're the reason we're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get time, visit lhfmissions.org to learn more. And if you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. You can also give us a call, 1-800-730-2727 on Days We're Live. Unfortunately, that's not today, but write down that number for future episodes. Well, joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Lucas Witt. He's an assistant pastor, pardon me, of Emanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Good morning, Pastor Witt. Welcome back to the program. Morning, Pastor Putin. It's good to be back. We're both hey, having a little stubble this morning. <laughs> that's, that's okay. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel better. So uh, how, how's life up there in Baltimore? Um, you know, I know how's Lent going? Lent's just gotten started, but how are things going for you guys? Yeah, Lent's well, just getting started. Uh, when we're recording here, well, we're just a couple days past Ash Wednesday. Um, out here on the East Coast, there's a bit more of a, a Roman Catholic flair. Um, so I think it's a bit strong out here, but... Uh, I, I help teach at uh, a Lutheran school out here, and we put the ashes on the kids' foreheads. And um, it's really neat because, you know, half have a strong church background, and, and half it's kind of, uh, whoa, what's going on here the first time they do it? Um, and, and so it's really powerfully some of them, too, that uh, decide to come forward and um, receive this pl- proclamation of uh, Christ mm-hmm. with the cross on their head um, and the reminder of uh, how much bigger life is than just the dust and ashes we, we have before us. So. Um, so Lenza, no, that's, a I mean, that's great. Time. Yeah. And plus, you know, something like uh, ashes, you know, it's a, it's an oddy <laughs> offering, but it is a practice that I think if taught and used appropriately can proclaim, you know, certainly law, but, but gospel too. And I think it's wonderful that you guys are involving the kids there, uh, taking that opportunity, uh, every year around Ash Wednesday, people, at least in our theological circles, right? Everybody gets all worked up over whether or not ashes are good or bad. And it's good to always be thinking about our practices. But yeah, I think that's a great example of where you get the opportunity to talk with kids about, about well, about the, the truth of the consequences of sin, but also the salvation that we have in Jesus. So what a great, what a great opportunity. Yeah, I agree. It's, I'm glad we did it. 
All right, well, we're going to go ahead and get into our text today, but we won't do that before praying. So if you would lead us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, let us pray. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of our universe. You have given us your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we may uh, live fully now and live forevermore as we enter into or continue in this Lenten season, Lord, uh, what's placed before us on the the rules uh, that we're about to read here um, are a reminder, uh, not of what we need to do, uh, but are a reflection of who you are and how you distinguish yourself from uh, any other imaginary God and what anybody could come up with, Lord. So bless us with uh, the, your words this morning that we may uh, hear, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, inwardly digest them like chewing the cud, Lord, during this day and this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, but folks at home may not, chapters 14 and 15 present us laws related to ritual purity and holiness. It really harkens us back to Exodus and Leviticus. Um, it comes after a, a little a diatribe in the sense where where he is talking about a, a, adult, uh, sorry, well, adultery is related, but idolatry against the Lord, uh, talking about how a few men could take over a, a city and, and what to do about that. Uh, is there any other foundation, though, that you think is important to lay down before we just dive right in to the first section, which is about clean and unclean food? Um. Yeah, I think, you know, when we get into these parts, we're, we're distinguishing or, or God's distinguishing, you know, who he is. And uh, so often you know, we want to think about how this applies to our lives. But I think another place to, to remind us of ourselves is uh, uh, the, the studying of God's word um, really is a reflection that's great just in of itself to understand who God is. And I always like to remind myself that, again, it's not a bunch of rules that I must follow to get eternal life, um, but it's really a reflection of God portraying himself. And even as we wrestle with some understanding and, and context behind a lot of these, um, they're so valuable to, to understand or, or attempt to understand because they, uh, they distinguish us because they distinguish who God is. So I think that's um, a great reminder for us. The uh, Deuteronomy is um, reflective of what uh, in ancient Near Eastern culture was kind of a um, a treaty, uh, or at least I should say it reflects uh, that's something like a treaty. And so we've gotten through the, the preamble, we've gotten through the historical part, um, and so now we've gotten into kind of the, the stipulations. There's usually a general part and a specific part, and uh, I think around chapter 12 um, is kind of where we get into the nitty-gritty. Um, and so this this really matches something that would have been familiar um, to people, not just the Israelites, but uh, many around the, that time period for what a treaty looks like when you are really subservient uh, to somebody who is ruling over you and will say, you know, greater than yourself in a sense. So, um, so I think that's kind of a, a neat way that Deuteronomy reminds us that God is very distinct and different, but uh, but he, he also meets us with things that we are familiar with and can understand. And he does that here with Moses in Deuteronomy as well. Well, we're going to read just the first two verses to get started, because as you said, this is telling us something about who God is. And it's also telling us something about who the people or the children or the sons of God 
are. And you're right. It's not this pure list of do this, do this, and I'll be happy. And if you don't, I'll be mad and punish you. It's really a description of, well, what it looks like to be set apart. Well, let's just hear the first two verses and and we'll see where we can go with that. Uh, Chapter 14, verse 1, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. And Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So before he even gets into any of these specific, like, don't eat these types of animals, he, he makes it very clear. He, he shows, he, I'm sorry, he begins the description of what's happening as you are the sons, I guess we could say children today, because it certainly isn't just the male children, but you are the children of Yahweh, your God. That, that first sort of salvo, I think, sets the tone for what we're going to be talking about through the rest of this chapter and the next. Yeah, I mean, what a beautiful declaration um, to, to say, you know, before getting into the nitty gritty, if you want to say it right, here's a proclamation of who you are, right? And it's it's God's declaration. It's, it's not, um, we don't have a conditional thing coming up here. It's just, here is why I'm giving you these commands and here, um, here is just who you are in your identity. So yeah, it's a, a beautiful statement there to really start off on getting to you know, what are we doing and, and why are we doing this? Well, it's because it's God has, has called, uh, called his children, like you said, declared his children. But then the word, the, the sentence that follows, though, is kind of, I guess it probably stands out to us who aren't related with the customs of the day, because in the first prohibition, at least in this, in this part, is you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. I have a feeling that's going to need some unpacking for folks. What does he mean? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I got to say, that's one of those rules I'm happy to hear. <laughs> no problem. Um, if I were one who would say, oh, what is up for me uh, as somebody who's standing before Moses in that day and time? But, um, you know, again, this is all in contrast to a culture that is around them in Canaan, right? And so there are many other people and nations, um, I believe is how our translation says it here. Yeah. Called you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Well, most of those other people on the face of the earth um, are not following the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're following other gods. And a lot of times um, from what uh, I understand uh, when it comes to um, especially times of, uh, well, it says for the dead right here, um, so they're trying to appease uh, their gods, whoever that is, by doing things that God says are, are not very pleasing. Um, the baldness on the forehead, you know, um, or maybe between your eyes, I think some translation says, you know, I think it's somewhere on your head. Um, and just shaving that off, that's a, as far as I can go with that. But I think cutting yourselves is something um, that, again, we know that the shedding of of blood is something that God, you know, does not endorse um, unless you're talking about a, a sacrifice. Uh, the life is in the blood. And so um, to cut yourselves or lacerate to, you know, please the gods or appease the gods or try and convince them of something. Or um, I, I think maybe there's a chance this is some kind of ancestor worship at times too in Canaan. Um, it's really not the way to be manipulative, manipulative or please our God. Um, but it's just an action that they did and is, 
Again, God's distinguishing his people, not just to say, hey, let's be different than them. Um, but there's something that's that's spiritual and I will say dark and demonic about it because these are, um, you know, these are false, false gods that they are um, inventing there. So um, it may sound familiar to, um, let's see, where is it? Elijah, right? It's one of my, oddly, one of my favorite stories uh, in the Older Testament, right? Sure. Elijah is um, against the prophets of Baal, right? It's probably the most popular thing that people might be thinking of right now and how uh, Baal is not responding to them. And so they, you know, they try harder and they start cutting themselves um, to show their devotion. I think there's even texts of how some, um, some would even like chop off parts of their finger and throw it on the altar to their God um, to try and appease them um, as they worshiped. And so God says, that is, that is not the way, um, that, that is not the way of life. It's not the way to worship me. Well, just a small passage from where exactly where you're talking about, that's first Kings chapter 18. Uh, and I just want to read just a few verses, but 27 we have, and at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud. For he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. And of course, they, he's mocking their gods. And 28 says, And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. So you're absolutely right, brother. I mean, the cutting for sure is related to these false worship practices that we see even for those who are worshiping the Baals and, and the baldness on your forehead, for what it's worth, my, my very brief uh, survey of that relates to a, a mourning practice uh, in terms of balding your foreheads or having any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. I guess in the Middle East or during this time, there was a practice where people would shave parts off of their head as an example of mourning. So, um, if that's what he's talking about here, as you already said, it's still relating to these false practices that really do not endear yourself to God. You know, our, 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 I guess actually, I think of our text from Ash Wednesday, right? We, we don't do our, our righteousness to make a big show, either for people or even to God. I mean, it, we don't do all of these things so that God will throw us a bone. And, and yeah, I think that's, at least that's what I heard you bring out. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you know it is the truth that uh, when we, you know, even when even when we start to import some ideas that others have um, from false gods, we it kind of takes us one step closer to to you know, looking in that direction as well. So, um, well, yeah. even in verse two, though, and and I wanted to ask you about this. So he says because or for right, don't do these things because you are a people holy, set apart to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you, and, and we, we have that language a lot. But, so God's chosen them, and he literally wants them to be set apart. He wants them to act differently. Uh, that suggests to me that it's less about, like, a morality, like it's amoral to do this, and more about a, you know, you need to set yourselves apart, you need to be distinct from the nations around you. What does that have to say? I mean, I know at the top of the show you said, well, this is about the nature of God, and it is, but what does that have to say about us as God's people today? You know, I, as a pastor, certainly you probably told your, your, your parishioners that, well, really, you're not supposed to look like the rest of the world. Is there a connection there? Yeah, I, oh, let's see, what was my, 
know, I'm, when we talk about being different, um, you know, it's, I always say that our, our actions, you know, we act different um, than the world, but the reason we're different is not just because of our actions. <laughs> the reason we are different is because our God is different than all other gods, right? Who he is and who he's declared us to be is, is separate from everybody else. Um, and so that's, you know, it's a special phrase here. Um, God, again, is talking to you know, the nation of Israel and says, I distinguish you from you know, all the other peoples, right? He uses a special term here, uh, segula, which I remember Dr. Lessing saying very clearly in seminary. Um, but I guess the, the term here is so a, when a king would uh, defeat another army, um, that, you know, there'd be the, the spoils or, or the plunder or whatever you want to call it. Um, but, you know, who gets to go in first is, is the king. And the king gets to basically pick out, you know, his portion as if it doesn't exist to everybody else. Um, but then the, the, the Segula, his treasured possession is kind of the, the, the most prized possession that he has. And he doesn't just, in a sense, put it back in his, um, you know, in his throne room, but it's something that he, he more, it's more like he puts it on a chain around his neck. Um, and it is just always right there near and close to him. Um, I suddenly think of the, <laughs> the movie Titanic with uh, whatever that special jewel was, but um, you know, it's, it's something that he has set apart from everybody else and every other possession and keeps it close to him at all times. I think that is a very powerful image of what God does for his people and how, what he's declaring to them as being his treasured possession. And, and that makes, again, a, God, a distinct God um, makes his people distinct as well. I like that. I like that distinction um, about how it's not just uh, some expensive stuff or some valued stuff that he has, but it is a particular treasure, which he has chosen. At least that's how uh, the BDAG does it. And so, uh, or sorry, the BDB. But we have this idea, and I, and I love how you're making that, uh, or Lessing's making that through you, this idea that God has set us apart, but he set us apart to really be a showpiece for him. And so I, I think that who mm. God is, who we are as his valued possession, treasured possession, uh, is connected to, though, however, our behavior and our set apartness. You know, you don't take your most valued treasure and then just sort of throw it in the mud. You, you actually uh, take care of it. You, you, you make sure that it is, uh, is pure and you make sure that it is uh, respected by others. And I think that's, I think that's what we're getting at here. Well, let's add some more verses to the conversation, and we're going to get into some names here, not all of which we actually know what they are. I think the translators have done their best to try to identify these types of animals and birds, but we're going to uh, take them apart right now. So he says in uh, verse 3, You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof and clove, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, and they are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. 
their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. So we're going to get into water animals and uh, air animals. But right now, here's the animals on the ground that you can and can't eat. Brother, it just seems so arbitrary. <laughs> why? Why is, why is God so particular about these certain animals? Huh. Um, well, I've, I've heard the, the claim before that, uh, you know, God, we know things by science now and uh, eating bottom feeders or, or pork or things like that, um, you know, is, is really a smart health thing. And it may be, but I'm, I've never quite been, been sold on that. And if, if somebody is, that's, you know, that's fine. Um, but I, I, I'm Pastor Boo. I'm, I'm curious where you go. I've had great conversations about this before. Um, but I think God is always using some kind of um, distinguishing from other people, but also also teaching here as well. And so when you have um, expressions used or like the, the pig is going to be a, a reflection of, of Rome in the future, um, I, I think God is preparing his people for some kind of uh, separation with, with teaching here a lot more than um, just a, uh, a dietary, um, safe, safe from bacteria type, type menu that's going on here, but it still goes back to distinguishing his people. Um, but if you know more about, uh, what happens with, um, the Canaanite culture around them with the food <laughs> in that day, you can take it away from there. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I, that's why I asked the question, you know, I, here's what I think though, in general, I, I agree with you because if God was saying, you can't eat these animals because they're just so detrimental to your health, I think he might actually say that, but he doesn't. And then it would seem unlikely that when um, we have Peter on the roof, now I know that that is talking about, of course, acceptance of Gentiles uh, as they're not unclean, but but also to be set apart to the Lord. I know it has really nothing to do with animals, but because it uses the example of animals and he just says, rise and eat, I, I don't think that he would have conflated that. If, it, if this was like, do, do not eat these types of animals forever because they're so bad for you, then that would have been the case forever. And that's just my opinion. I mean, I could be wrong. I, I, I like your reasoning. I mean, I think you're absolutely right when it comes to some of the symbolism, the set-apartness. That's the point. I, I, maybe it is, in a way, arbitrary. Or on the opposite end of the spectrum, maybe God has some deeper understanding that we just aren't getting. Or maybe people have gotten it, and we don't all agree. I, I don't know. Uh, all I do know is that bacon is delicious, and so that, it makes it very hard, uh, and I think probably influences a lot of people to read this very figuratively. Uh, but you know what I'm saying. We, we, we have these different animals, animals that they would have had access to. Um, some of them, the hare, I mean, people eat rabbits. Uh, the rock badger seems a little specific, uh, the hyrax. But anyway, I, I just think it's kind of interesting, and I didn't know if you had thought about it. But you're right. Some people connect it to health. Uh, some people connect it to symbology. I really don't know. I really don't know. It's one of those things where uh, if I remember, which I won't, I'll, I'll ask when we get to the new heavens and new earth. Yeah, I I'm, know I'm probably in a, a bit of a, a smaller group when it, when it comes to this, but I, I think um, you know here it's very important to remember uh, that, that God— you know, and Moses are talking, you know, specifically to the, the Israelite nation right here. And you want know, the context of separating you from all the other peoples on the face of the earth. Right. So I think this is something that's um, 
a, a Gentile's not so concerned about uh, as far as the, the dietary things are, but a, a Jewish person um, should be rather concerned about. But um, I, there are some some rules, and I didn't go back and look deeply here, but um, you know, we, we talk about the, the law, you know, as Lutherans and the law of Moses and Scripture. Um, but but there's there's four words that kind of fall under the law area, um, and they're kind of translated roughly, you know, commandment, uh, judgment, statute, and and law or instruction are kind of the four areas. Um, but but the ones that are usually translated statute, um, the Hebrew there is hook, but it actually is basically. Um, the meaning of the word there is basically just kind of like it's it's a rule without any um, logical explanation from God, you know, and uh, <laughs> um, hmm, interesting. it doesn't give anything beyond just guess what, you know, do this and, um, you know, you can ask questions, but you're not really going to get the answer, it seems. So uh, maybe this falls under that category. Absolutely. I mean, hey, sometimes I'm I'm God and you're not is enough of a reason. <laughs> and I right. think that. I think that we are, and we think of Job, right? But we think, even today, we are very susceptible to this idea that God somehow needs to answer to us. I, I think of someone, a defendant in front of a judge, um, even in our current legal system, and they start asking the judge a bus bunch of questions. And, and the judge might entertain a few, but at some point, the judge is going to say, she's going to say, hey, listen, I'm the judge. I don't have to answer your questions. And that's yeah. kind of our relationship with God. We need to remember that sometimes. Well, let's add some more, uh, some more animals. In verse 9 and 10, he adds, uh, of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. So that seems kind of straightforward. I mean, if it, <laughs> this is hearkening back to Leviticus 11, uh, 9, and he talks, uh, he says, there, you may eat all that are in the waters, everything that is in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fin and scales uh, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So, yeah, God says, hey, if it has scales, it's all, it's it's fair game. If it doesn't, it's not. Uh, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, a, an animal in the water that doesn't have scales, like I guess an eel is an example. Um, I, I don't uh, well, I'm, I'm here in Baltimore, and let me tell you, crab is a very big thing here. Oh, um, yes. And I rather enjoy it. Oh. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, you, you would also have um, a lot of the things that are popular here. And, and with all due respect to Minnesota, I, I've lived there, but uh, are better out here. Um, I don't even <laughs> going back to Iowa in the Midwest. But, yeah, you get, you know, the crab and the, the go further up with the, the lobster in Boston and, uh, and the scallops and um, shrimp and those kind of things. Um, like that's what I sometimes just call the bottom feeder. So. So yeah, yeah it kind of hurts. Um, for the I'm record, thankful that again. <laughs> for the record, you're preaching to the choir. I I served a congregation for seven years in Connecticut, so I okay, I, I miss uh, I miss you know lobster rolls and and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I you can't it can't compete here in, in Minnesota in the Midwest. But but those you're right though. Those are examples of other animals that we can't or we couldn't eat if we lived 
uh, in this context. I don't know how much access they had to those kinds of animals in where they were, but uh, but absolutely, there were certain things that they had to make a distinction between. But you're but it's all yeah. about setting the tone of being set apart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I, I don't have a whole lot more to say about uh, the the fish there. But, you know, being um, you think about Jesus time, you know, being off the Sea of Galilee or, you know, being over in Israel like there's there's fish all the time. There's fish for breakfast. Um, sure. And so sure. they have, like you said, they have, they have plenty of options and it's a, it's a huge thing for them to think about for their, their seafood. But, um, like you said, going beyond going set apart here, um, you know, I can't go any deeper <laughs> into well, the mind of God. That's for sure. Don't worry. No one's asking you to. In fact, it's time for us to take a break. So when we come back, we'll talk about the birds you can't eat and we'll talk about a couple other things and then we'll move right into tithing. Always an exciting subject. Folks, don't go anywhere. Come back. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because Good Lutheran Books for Kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today, it's the Reverend Lucas Witt, an assistant pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Don't forget, folks, you can reach out to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo, and I'll accept your friend request, and we can talk. Or you can call in when we're live, uh, which pretty soon is going to be most every episode, but at the moment it's not. Uh, starting in March, it'll be nearly every episode. But in any case, that number, write it down now so that you can use it when it comes time, is 800-730-2727. Okay, let's just finish up this whole first section here. I'm going to read from verse 9 all the way through verse 21. And that should take care of the rest of the clean and unclean food section. Moses says, of all that are in the waters, you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales, you may eat. Whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat it. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, a the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl, the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the coromont, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe uh, and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So 
that last line kind of jumped out. It seemed like it was all settled. And then there's just like, oh, oh, oh yeah, one more thing. You know, like Columbo. Just one more thing. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All right. So any insight into these? I know that these are a lot of animals. And I don't know that the identifications are really perfect. But he, he's trying to get something across here. Uh, yeah. Um, you have, again, more of the talk of... Uh, you know, being, being separated and, and distinguish, um, you, know, you go through the list of the birds, and uh, if you see it on an NFL helmet, uh, you basically know it's you shouldn't eat it. Uh, it's virtually <laughs> impure. you got the Ravens, the Eagles, the, the Seahawks, the Falcons, so that's a good guideline uh, if somebody's wondering. Just think of the NFL teams. Um, I, that never occurred to me. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> there's, there's a few more there, but you come back to the same, um, let's see, what is it, verse 21 there. You come back to the same thing. You are, you are people who are holy to your God. Uh, verse 21 has a distinguishing distinguishing factor. And this is, again, what I said before, kind of why I think uh, a Jewish person should be very concerned about these things, but not so much a Gentile. Um, as he, he talks about, you know, you, you can give these uh, these things um, that have died naturally. You know, don't, do, do not touch them. Um, that's not fit for you, but you can give them to the to the Egyptian who's walking with you or, or somebody else or the person who's visiting um, there, they're more than welcome to do those things. And so you, you do have another mentioning here of, of a, a distinction where, um, you know, God has, a, has called a specific people um, to, to act in a certain way um, and, and doesn't always goes up, give us the fullness, but he reiterates the beauty of your people, holy to the Lord, your God. Um, I think, as we're pondering, sometimes, you know, maybe to get back to you know, a temptation to kind of skip over these things. I, I will say as a kid, I, um, you know, multiple times, third, fourth, fifth grade, you know, started reading the Bible for whatever reason, you know, like Genesis and, and Exodus. And, and then you get to Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy. Um, but I think it helps bring us an understanding of, of moments like when Jesus refers to them. So I, I was just paging back to Matthew 23, uh, 23 and 24. Um, you know, if somebody says, well, it's useless to know these things or read these things. You know, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and scribes there. And he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Uh, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, which again is what God is always after the most, right? Um, these you ought to have done without neglecting others. You blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Right? But he has a, a reference to, to a portion like this, because otherwise you're thinking, what does that mean? Gnats and camels. Um, but he's making a distinction of how they get so very focused, and maybe this is a temptation for us too, you know, get so very focused on, on something that is near and dear or specific to our background or taught a lot, you know, and straining out a gnat, um, and again, ritually impure, animal. Uh, and then he talks about how on the other side, they're, they're swallowing a whole camel, which again is, is impure. Um, and how there's the picking and choosing of, uh, of what to do and what not to do. Um, so it, it brings Jesus back to Deuteronomy here, which he references a bunch, but um, I think it's a good reminder that as, as people set apart uh, biologically, Israel and us being grafted in um, of, of our need to to dig into and and get the whole counsel of God's law as his as his special people, um, and sometimes uh, leave behind our our temptation to to focus on something very very small like a gnat, um, while 
while not looking at the big camel that uh, we're willing to swallow. What might you say pastorally to those Christians who've been led to believe, maybe they've read online or maybe they just had the thought that, you know, this kind of stuff, it's really important for us to start keeping this. You know, we as Christians need to do this. We need to be set apart. And of course we are. But what would you say to folks who say it's necessary or at least very advantageous for the believer to follow these Old Testament guidelines on cleaning unclean animals? Mm. Yeah, and that's that's a good putting it put that back in here. I mean, you know, if if somebody personally decides, Paul speaks to this, if somebody personally decides and says, you know, I'm gonna try and follow these things, they're God's rules, and you know, I'm I just I just want to do that. Um, you know, great. Right. I will not try and talk you out of that if you can joyfully go about that um and pursue um you know how how you take God's words there. But uh, to put them as an extra law or or fence, or I guess maybe that's a good way to put it out here, you know, straining out the data here, focusing on something that you um, don't necessarily are not told you need to do um, uh, by God, um, to put that burden on somebody else and say, I'm, I'm convinced that I must do um, every single rule. But scripture makes very clear, and here's a good reference to Acts 15, <laughs> Um, where, the, where the apostles and council are are talking about this and basically say this is there's there's only a certain amount of ones that we need to have the Gentiles do um, because they're not we don't need to put an extra burden on them that's not the point um, the point is not to do all the rules and show God your faithfulness right the the point is to live um, a life that is separated out by God uh, as Jesus says there in Matthew 23 of justice mercy and faithfulness and that's really what each and every one of these is all getting at. So if somebody says they want to do it, I will say um, you're welcome to do that. Uh, be convinced and, and do it, but um, make sure it is a a blessing to your worship of who God is and not a burden to yourself or other people, um, which will get us into the tide here a little bit too. I'm getting, coming up. <laughs> well, in fact, that's what we're going to do right now. So let's head on into tithing, uh, starting with verse 22. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before Yahweh your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when Yahweh your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that Yahweh your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before Yahweh your God and rejoice you and your household and you shall not neglect the Levite who was within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. So, yeah, they're, they're supposed to take a tenth of all this and go and just consume it. I, this is not what people think of uh, in the modern church when they think of tithing. Uh, but take us through this. What does this look like? Well, let's. Uh, I guess let's start with some similarities. There, we're we're familiar um, with the term tithe in a sense, right? It, it gets us to uh, the idea of ten percent, um, and so God is saying there is 
there are certain uh, portions that you are to bring before. Um, and so what they do is when they bring it in the harvest or certain times you like that, um, they, they bring it to the Lord. Uh, and there are certain times of the year or even every three years as they go here and they bring um, charity for the sake of the Levites, right? Who don't have land because they are doing the priestly work and that's their, that's their task where they bring it for the, uh, the widow and those who are not able to make their own um, lifestyle because they don't have land or they don't have the, the means or you know, a, a widow may just be, again, living off the graces of others. So, um, so it's, it's similar to our time in a sense that we, we give an offering for our Lord and, and it is to help, well, servants uh, in, our, in our churches, right? We, we compensate uh, pastors and those who we put on our staff and say, we don't want you going out and, and um, worrying about feeding for your families and doing this job, so we'll do it for you, right? We give um, alms and maybe donating um, you know, food and, and clothing because we uh, take care of, of those around us. Um, but what's, what's different here um, is, you know, we kind of have a consistent view of the tithe as far as 10% goes. Um, they have a multiple tithes, whether it's the, what you've accumulated, what you've owned, um, what's going to the Levites. And so anywhere between 10 and 30% is what they are bringing before the Lord. And then you highlighted the, um, the, the meal aspect. So if you, if you go back to Leviticus, um, we a lot of times think of these things as as sin offerings or sacrifices, but uh, most of them are not. And part of it a lot of times is you're actually eating um, what you're sacrificing, including the uh, the grain at this point. So um, I think there's something beautiful in this. Um, and, and maybe at times we're tempted. <laughs> Once I say tithe, maybe like 15, you know, 15 percent of the listeners decide to turn us off here. Um, but. Uh, you know, what, what we have is an opportunity to come before our God with what he has given us um, because 100% is his. And what he opens the door to is, is uh, you know, I, I'd say a rule to keep in order, um, but also an invitation to come uh, with, our, with what's already his and recognize that it's his um, and actually literally sit down and have a meal with, um, with your family and sometimes the, the priest is representatives in, the, in God's presence. So it's really, um, it's really a, a beautiful picture uh, that again, we bring our offering, but, um, but to look at a sense of bringing it before God in that communion um, is something that maybe I will, I will say that I haven't always pondered when I am putting my offering in the plate or especially now, you know, when, uh, when you can do it through online giving. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it's it's a great thing to kind of sit back and ponder of what what is the tithe and the offering um, really do here as far as being being different and special before God and his presence. And I also like that it says flat out that you're going to come to this place that I tell you, and we know this is the, the sanctuary, you're going to have these, uh, these festive meals, these really, it's just like a celebration. And then it says, of course, there's practicality. I love it. If it's too long, the food will spoil, the animals will be tired out, then just sell them and bring money. But either way, he says that you do this because you're supposed to remember that the Lord is the one who provides for you. And we think often of, well, yeah, so I have 100% of everything I have is God's, and I'm going to 
uh, dedicate a portion of that, a tenth or however much I want in order to support his work. And, and that's what you've been explaining. And in this section, though, they are literally both bringing the tithe, the tenth, and also consuming it in the presence of the Lord. So it's, it's, it's really a, a declaration, a, a confession of the fact that not only are you giving the first fruits back to the Lord, but look what the Lord wants you to do with those first fruits. Well, first, he wants you to enjoy them. Well, first, he wants you to help take care of the priests, but then he wants you to enjoy these things. He wants you to celebrate with them. Uh, remember, not only that are you to give to the Lord's work, so to speak, but rather that work supports you. And that's what stands out to me. That's why I think it's a this is a really kind of interesting text if we slow down and look at it. It's, it's not just about what you're sacrificing for the Lord. It's really focusing on what the Lord is giving them through this through this tent. And in, same, in the same way, when you give to the church, you are enjoying the benefits of that gift. The, the priest or the pastor is taken care of first, and the ministry of the church is taken care of. That's pretty much what's been going on since God first set his people apart. In this next section, we're going to talk about taking care of the poor, but we haven't gotten there yet. This is about taking care <clears throat> of God's people. And that's the connection that I see. Yeah. I love how you bring out there that each, each thing that we, you know, in a sense, give or release to remind ourselves is God, you know, is, is something that isn't just going to somebody else, but it's right. It's part of God's bigger economy that it also is, is benefiting us as well, maybe in an indirect way, but yeah, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thought. And for my Baptist friends, I just I have to emphasize verse 26. And spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite <laughs> craves. I only say that because we actually don't know what that intoxicating beverage is, strong drink, but it was probably beer. I mean, you know, you had wine and then you had malty kind of beverages. It was some form of beer, meat or something like that. Uh, it's just fun to see that, you know, the, the Lord gives us these gifts, even frankly, I'm going to be dangerous here, but even intoxicants uh, to use in very moderate ways uh, to enjoy life and creation that God has given us. Um, or as I was growing up in that very strict teetotaling tradition, uh, you, you could always have a little wine for the sake of the stomach, as St. Paul says. <laughs> but in any case, let's look at verse 28 and we'll finish up our text for today. Because then he shifts. See, this is a yearly thing he's just been talking about, and now it's every three years. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that what Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, I know the culture is different and things are different, but it's very interesting here how the priests, uh, you know, they get to go take of this too because they're, they're, they're wholly taken care of by the people's generosity. And God is establishing this, this system so that they can be taken care of. But then they're lumped in, and rightly so, with the sojourner, the father, the, the widow, the, the poor, the indigent. Um, that's where the priests need to be, among the people who need God and need his, his rescue. But anyway, what do you see in this text? 
yeah, I, I jumped the gun before thinking of this part too. Um, but yeah, that's the, the beauty of, um, I, I guess there's a contrast here too. Uh, you know, in, in, in communism, there's this idea of this, this force kind of um, equal, equal status, right? Except for those who are in charge. And so you, you ration everything so everybody's of equal status. And there's something beautiful here in um, the joyful giving to those who, who are in need or would lack without that kind of generosity and joy that comes from that. Um, and in, on this topic, uh, Malachi, uh, Malachi 3.10 like Jesus in the wilderness, you know, reminds us not never to test the Lord, your God. Um, but there's one point where God says you can test him. And it's in this area. Uh, Malachi 3.10 um, says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse and that there may be food in my house. And thereby, here he says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Um, and as we think about maybe slightly overwhelmed by, and as we ponder in culture, you know, like who's the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow and uh, the Levites, right? And there's there's so much need in our world. Um, you could think what, you know, what, <laughs> as they said, what can, what can so little do for so much? Um, but the Lord invites us to say, you know, if it tests me out on this, you, you, you give, you give. And I will provide um, not only for others, but for you as well. Um, and there's there's something beautiful in that trust of again, maybe in contrast to uh, to to other gods, how they are in a sense trying to to manipulate or appease in their in their givings and sacrifices, you know, um, and hoping that uh, he gives back enough. Our God says, you, know, you you can give generously because um, I I have plenty and abundance and and more for whatever whatever we need. Luther looks at this section too, and, and he talks about the, well, he emphasizes how the priests are taken care of and the Levites are provided for uh, first, uh, and then uh, the poor are, are helped. And, and he, he makes a, a lot of hay, frankly, out of this distinction. And of course, knowing what he was dealing with, that makes sense. Um, in our day and age, uh, certainly, I guess any pastor, if he was very honest, would say that he could use a few more bucks. But I think most pastors I know uh, feel fairly well taken care of, right? I don't know many pastors who complain and those who do uh, generally are kind of inappropriate about it, if I can be just bold. But I'll say this, um, our concern for today for the poor, though, seems to have shifted. Well, the church, I think, does a lot for the poor and should and, and should do more. I feel like we've abdicated that to the government. You know, and so I wonder from your just opinion, you know, is the church doing what it's supposed to be doing, taking care? I mean, I think they're always striving to take care of their pastors, which is wonderful, and the ministries. But are we doing enough for the poor? Is this a call to us at all? I mean, the poor we will always have with us, <laughs> right? So um, there will not be a lack of opportunity for us. That's for sure. Um, but yeah, Pastor Boo, I will, I will agree with you. Um, you know, institutions are a strong backbone uh, of our culture, but um, but at times we also tend to kind of rely, um, and maybe they allow us to rely on on rely on a certain you know a certain few or or the staff or my donation um, to a certain place, and, and they can do the rest. And you know, I think this is you know I'll be a bit bold here too and say I think this is one of those areas we um, as a church could improve on. Um, 
and also, well, I won't, won't say I'm results oriented, but I think I think that's a huge part when we look at uh, some of our struggles of, of people in numbers and how um, the opportunities that is there to personally connect with somebody who is in need, um, in my experience, really does open a, a door to a, a conversation about, um, you know, instead of this being from some kind of institution or, or somewhere else, but you know, here, here's here's flesh, right? Here's hands and feet of somebody who says, "I'm going to be here with you to um, whether it's give food or clothing or um, or just company and prayer." Um, I, I'll agree with you. That is, it is. There's rarely more powerful moments I have for talking about uh, Christ with somebody um, than being this this opportunity to be right in front of their face and and providing something that God has put in my hand for them. And this is really for discussion tomorrow, but the next chapter, verse 4, you know, you quoted Jesus saying that, you know, the poor you'll always have. Verse 4, he says, but there will be no poor among you, for Yahweh will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of Yahweh your God. So the words of Jesus there, you'll always have the poor with you. Um I think sometimes you weren't, but sometimes I think people use that as an excuse not to help the poor, to say, oh, yeah, well, we're always going to have poor. But what I, in light of something like this, you think, well, maybe Jesus is saying the poor you'll always have with you because you don't follow the will of God. You don't do those things that God has established to create uh, justice in the land. Uh, Certainly something for us to consider uh, as we go into our next chapter, which is going to be tomorrow. Uh, but anything else, brother, about that or anything else you want to lay on the line before we wrap up our show today? No, I think that's a great, um, great point and segue because structurally as well, um, and pulling us out, um, you know, we've, we've talked about uh, richly unfit things and, and it'll come on the other side of uh, chapter 15 there. But I think when you look at the structure, the focus really is all kind of leaning in, um, call it chiasm, but it's all kind of leaning in on chapter 15 with the topic you just talked about. Uh, with taking care of the poor and those disadvantaged, um, it, it all kind of comes to a focal point here. So I think, I think that's a, that's a beautiful way to, to head right into it. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show, folks. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Lucas Witt, Assistant Pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland. Brother, again, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Pastor Boone. All right, everybody. Well, I want you to come back tomorrow because tomorrow we're going to move right into that chapter that we teased today. I'll be joined by the Reverend Levi Williams. Moses introduces this revolutionary concept of the Sabbath year, a time of debt forgiveness and liberation. It underscores God's deep concern and compassion within the Israelite community. He instructs the people to cancel debts every seven years, urging them to lend generously and without hesitation knowing that God's blessing would compensate their generosity. Moses also commands the humane treatment of Hebrew slaves who are to be freed in the seventh year with sufficient resources to start anew. Boy, I think we have a lot to talk about when we return, so I hope you'll join us for it. But until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.
Showing support for KFUO is now easier than ever. You can sport a KFUO shirt, swag, or even socks by visiting our online store. Go to kfuo.org slash store and order high-quality KFUO-branded merch. You no longer need to wait for our annual share for a chance to show your KFUO spirit. Visually share and wear this ministry out in the world by checking out our selection. Every purchase helps to support our proclamation of Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. Go to kfuo.org slash store.